Thank you, Sister Lisa, and uh, thank you, everybody. I, I just feel this deep sense of gratitude for this congregation, for everything that everybody does to make this congregation what it is. I certainly um, appreciate the contribution of our young people, and I love the youth study today. I thank uh, Deacon Jan for the way that that was conducted, and thank for the, the young people for the research that they did, the homework they did, and also your creativity. I uh, was quite touched by what you taught us. And in fact, the sermon today came as a result of reflecting on the youth study last week, where we talked with the young people about the Beatitudes. And Jesus Christ laid out eight attitudes that he said were blessed. And when you look at these attitudes, one would find it hard to consider them blessed, culminating in the one that says, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That these, being poor in spirit, being meek, uh, God says that you are blessed by these. And some of the commentaries actually teach that the blessing occurs now in this life. That we're blessed in this way. And that is far from the truth. It's very clear when Christ speaks that he's speaking of the future. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. And he says in Revelation, you know, my reward is with me. So yes, our reward is in heaven now with Christ, but he's coming with that reward. And we are blessed when he returns. And the reason there is such a sharp contrast between those that God says are blessed today, persecuted, reviled, uh, falsely accused, is because when he comes, this world will completely change. Everyone who's first now will be last. Everyone who's last, God will make first. The weak will be made strong. The proud will be brought down. It's a complete reversal. So the, the world that's coming is completely different than anything we know. And that's why when we have these beautiful attitudes, when we, when we develop this character, this true Christian character, when Christ returns, we are truly blessed. I just want to highlight one scripture as we, we begin. And it's this scripture in John 18, where Christ says, My kingdom is not of this world. I don't know if it could be any clearer. God's kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It just can't be any clearer. God's kingdom is not today. And yet, Christians are confused. The majority of Christians believe that God's kingdom is here now, that we are somehow living out God's kingdom today. And even in the church of God, false doctrines are creeping into the church based on the belief that somehow God's kingdom is here today. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want us to be very, very clear about where we are in history, that we are in what the Bible calls this present evil age. That's where we are. Look at 2 Peter 2 and verse 5.
2 Peter 2 and verse 5, he says, He spared not the old world. So there was an old world. But saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, so we have an age that is referred to as the old world. So if we see, you know, where are we now in time, if, if this is a clock, we see that the pre-flood was one world, and where we are now is this present evil world. And in Matthew 12, verse 32, Christ says this, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So the Bible is very clear. There are three ages. There's what's called the antediluvian, or the pre-flood world. Then the flood came and wiped that world away. Then there's this present age, which the Bible refers to as this present evil age. And then there's the world to come, which is God's kingdom. And just, it sounds so basic, but just being very, very clear about this is a guard against false doctrine. That we can spot false doctrine simply whenever anybody tries to magnify this current age, then we know, and, and, and minimize the age which is to come, we know this is a false teaching. The age which is to come is so glorious, it is so magnificent, that this current age pales into insignificance. It's so pure that this current age is seen for it all, that, all the evil that, that it entails. And we must be clear about this. Let's go back to the scripture that Joshua, the young man Joshua, read here uh, moments ago in Galatians 1. Galatians 1, and let's just look at this and break it down a little bit. Beginning in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This holy being left the Godhead, came to earth, humbled himself, sacrificed himself, offered himself up. Why? To deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at verse 6. So we're being delivered from this present evil age. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different good news. Here's the good news. That even though we're in this present evil age, Jesus Christ left the Godhead, offered up himself to deliver us from this age and usher us into God's kingdom. This is the good news. And the Galatians were like that. They, they received the good news, and along came some false teachers, and like that, they were distracted and, and adopted another good news. Not that there is another one. There is no other good news. The, this, the, the, the Greek word is euangelion. Gospel is euangelion. It means news that is full of joy. It is complete. There is no bad news in the good news. It's complete good news. So there is no other gospel. There is no other good news. This one is full and entire. 
and yet they were easily distracted from it. Not that there is another one, but there are some false teachers who trouble you and want to distort the full good news of Christ. As it was in the first century, brethren, it's the same thing today. There are false teachers who trouble us and who are trying to bring another gospel. Not that there is another There is no other gospel. There is only one news that is complete and entirely full of joy. There is no other news. There is no other good news. But we, even thousands of years later, we still have teachers trying to distract us from the good news and trying to present this present evil world as if there's good news in it. There isn't. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one which we preach to you, let him be accursed. These are very strong, very powerful words. Very dogmatic. There's one good news. If anybody brings any other disguised good news, let that person be accursed. Even if it's an angel. And as we have said before, we said it before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what we want to do today, brethren, is look at this clear distinction of where we are in history, that we are in this present evil age, and to use this as a guide to spot false doctrine. And I want to share with you three doctrines that are on fire in the Christian world and creeping into the church of God. And we want to stop that. And then I want to share with you one doctrine that is in the world, which is taking over the world and creeping into the church of God. So three doctrines that are in Christianity coming into the church, and one doctrine that's in the world coming into the church. And we'll go through that. But first look at 2 Timothy 4. And even though we're looking at these four doctrines, what we're really doing is examining a principle with which we can use to spot any false doctrine or any false teacher. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, I am now ready to be offered. I'm ready to die. Okay? I'm not holding on to this life. I, I, I can die now. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And we all want to be able to say this at the end of our lives. That we've fought a good fight, we've kept the faith, we've finished the course. Henceforth, notice this, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Paul was not trying to hold on to present tense. Paul had a future orientation. And every true Christian and every true teacher has a future orientation. Anytime you see a Christian that is wedded to this world, something is wrong. And anytime you have a teacher that is promoting this age, something is wrong. Paul was ready to die. And he knew that he had a crown set up for him in the future age. 
and not me only, but all them that love his appearing. Do we have a future orientation? Or are we wedded to the present tense? If we love his appearing, our orientation is for the future. We're looking forward to his return. You know, I think that life in Canada, life in the West, is so wonderful. It's so comfortable. Why would we want Jesus to return? I mean, we want him to return, but not right away. You know, there are cars to buy and houses to buy and clothes to wear and people to see and songs to listen to. It's such a wonderful life. We have to be careful of the seduction that abundance brings. And, and we live in an I don't think any humans for, for thousands of years have lived. Kings didn't live as well as we. As the poorest person today, I would venture to say, some of the poorest people today in our society live better than some of the wealthiest people of years ago. So we have it really well. And we have to be careful. Satan wants to seduce us, take our eye off the day of his appearing. We have to love his appearing. So not only Paul, but everybody who loves his appearing has this crown laid up. Do your diligence to come unto me shortly. Notice this verse 10. I need your help because, believe it or not, there's one of the brethren named Demas who has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. Here's a brother working side by side with the apostle, and somehow the allure of this present age caught his imagination. And he was willing to give up the crown that's laid up for all of us who love his appearing, because something in the present age was more attractive. So he has forsaken Paul, having loved this present age, and he's departed unto Thessalonica. So brethren, it's no different than the first century. It's no different than with the Apostle Paul. Satan wants to ensnare us with goodies in this present life. And these goodies can take different forms, different, different manifestations. We have to be alert and, and completely committed to his appearing and the crown that he comes with. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 15, a familiar passage. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Notice this. And if children, then heirs. We're heirs. Heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. Jesus Christ is coming to inherit all things. And we are, or he is our brother. And we are joint heirs with him. If we think that there's anything in this present life that can measure up to what we are, what we are in set in motion to inherit with Christ, we've lost our way. We are joint heirs with Christ. If, uh oh, there's a condition here. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings 
of this present time. Again, this is the contrast between the present and the future. So whatever is going on for you, maybe there's a trial that you're going through, maybe there's a trial that we will go through in the future. We need to steal ourselves. Because whatever we go through, it's just, it's just for a moment. The clock is ticking. We're moving away from this present evil age. And we're moving into the future of God's age. And so whatever we are suffering, it's nothing. It's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And, and let's contrast this with Matthew 13. It's, it's not just the sufferings. It's not just the sufferings that we that are not compared. They're not worthy to be compared with what's coming. Matthew 13 shows us it's everything. Matthew 13, verse 44. We were talking about parables today with our young people. Here's a parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. In fact, one of the parables today, the young men were talking about a treasure that was hidden. So here's a parable where a treasure is hid in a field. The which, when a man found it, he hid it. And for the joy thereof, he goes and he sells all that he has. Because all that he has, is, it, it's not worthy to be compared to the treasure that he's found. And he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is what we're a part of. And hopefully we see this. That God has given us something. There is a treasure that he's handed to us that he's hoping we recognize the value of. And that there's nothing, whether it's a, whether suffering, joy, blessings, there's nothing in this present life that is worthy to be compared to what he's extending to us. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. And this is the unfortunate reality that the church is made up of wheat and tares. That's called what it is. So it's made up of wheat and tares. And that's not just the membership. And I'm not speaking CGI, I'm talking the church of God worldwide. Tares can be in the ministry. Tares can teach. And we, we have to have this ability to discern because Christ will discern. He will separate the good from the evil. So shall it be at the end of the world, when we move into God's kingdom, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So the wheat and tares will be separated. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's the reality. There's a pearl of great price that God holds out to us wants us to recognize its value, sell everything that we have to purchase that pearl. Not everybody gets it. Some people are going to be married to this present evil age, and they're going to compare what they have in this present, like Demas, they're going to be so in love with what they have in this present age that they're willing to give up the pearl of great price. And when the angels come, at the end, there's going to be a separation. So, if you can jot this down, if you are taking notes, 
how we spot false doctrine. Number one, any teaching that minimizes or obscures the future glory of God's kingdom is false doctrine. True teachers will magnify the world that's to come, the age that is to come. So in, in any teacher that minimizes that or ignores it, discounts it in any way, this is false doctrine. Number two, any teaching that gets us to focus our hope in this present world is false doctrine. Our hope is future-oriented. Number three, any teaching that obscures the greatness of Jesus Christ and his return by trying to magnify man's inner greatness in this present age is false doctrine. And you, you'll hear a lot of talk about the God within you and the, 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 you know, the powers of the mind. The power that we are focused on is Jesus Christ and his return. 2 Timothy 3. So we'll, we'll, we'll go, go through and look at these false doctrines in a second. 2 Timothy 3. And verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this. You have fully known, you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, Purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch. So, so Timothy saw, first up close and personal, what the Apostle Paul went through. The persecution, the false accusations, and how he was future-oriented. Never took his sight off the kingdom of God. At Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, if we are following this way, truly following this way, there are no exceptions. Satan hates this way of life. If we fully embrace it, we're going to suffer persecution. So the question we have to ask is, where is our orientation? Are we oriented to present tense or future tense? Because if it's present tense, when the persecution comes, we might not be able to withstand it. And, and if you hear this teaching, that once you're in Christ, no harm should ever befall you. This is false teaching. Once you're in Christ, you'll never be sick. Once you're in Christ, you'll never have financial difficulty. All of this is false. And we'll go through this in a second. And again, the young people, their parable, uh, the young men spoke about a boulder, the parable that they spoke of. I won't go into the details. But in a nutshell, they showed that we have a responsibility not to ignore boulders that are in the way, but to remove them. And false doctrine is a big boulder in the church. It always has been. From the beginning of the church, false doctrine has been trying to creep in. 
Because that's how brethren get destroyed. When we get false doctrine in our minds, that's how we're destroyed. And so each of us must make it our personal responsibility to withstand false teachers and false doctrine. Okay, so let's begin with the three doctrines, three Christian doctrines that present this, this or focus, promote this present evil world, and they're distracting us from God's kingdom. The first one, you're probably familiar with it, is the prosperity doctrine. Health and wealth, the health and wealth gospel. Okay? This is false doctrine. And here, there's a book called Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. And this is a review of that book by Larry Eskridge. He says, the prosperity gospel is surprisingly mainstream. It was mocked and derided across the cultural spectrum, but today the message of health and wealth enjoys wider support than one might imagine. African-American metaphysical teachers, so people who are teaching the meaning of life, in northern cities, so African-American metaphysical teachers in northern cities, such as Father George Hurley, Charles Emmanuel's Sweet Daddy Grace, and Father Divine, also proved important combining elements, they were important in combining elements of holiness, Pentecostal belief, black spiritualism, and self-help. So this is where the prosperity gospel is coming from. It's coming from the holiness movement, the Pentecostal movement, black spiritualism, and the self-help movement. He says, also figures such as Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill, and Norman Vincent Peale, with their more mainstream, friendly messages of positive thinking and visualizing success. These are the roots of this prosperity doctrine. It's primarily an American phenomenon, and it has to do with the, the rising of wealth and abundance within America. Wikipedia says this, Prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, or the health and wealth gospel, or the gospel of success, is a Christian religious doctrine that financial blessing is the will of God for Christians. So it is God's will that every one of us, once we name Christ, we are financially blessed. Name it and claim it. Confess it and possess it. This is the teaching. That through faith, positive speech, and donations to Christian ministries, we will always increase our material wealth. And I'm telling you, brethren, this is creeping into the church of God. That we believe we can name it and claim it. That Jesus Christ is on push-button remote control. And whatever we want, we just name it, we push a button, we snap our fingers, and Jesus Christ, get busy. Do our will. Give us more money. Wikipedia goes on. Congregants in prosperity churches are encouraged to speak positive statements about aspects of their lives that they wish to see improved. So you'll see proponents of this, even within the church, saying you have to be careful how you speak, you have to speak positive statements, these positive statements go out into the universe, and it's a law, that when these positive statements go out, goodness comes in. These statements, known as positive confessions, are said to miraculously change aspects of people's lives, if spoken with faith. So this gospel is all about 
when you say these words, you have to back it up with belief. I really believe. I'm naming it and I'm claiming it. I'm confessing it so I can possess it. This is the doctrine. Prosperity churches also encourage people to live without limits. Live without limits. You can have whatever you want. Just name it and claim it. And cultivate optimism about their lives. T.D. Jakes, pastor of the Potter's House, and, and there are brethren again that are feeding on teachers like this. You even have to hear them quote these teachers. So T.D. Jakes, and he's not the only one, pastor of the Potter's House, non-denominational megachurch, has argued in favor of prosperity, rejecting what he sees as the demonization of success. He views poverty as a barrier to living a Christian life. Suggesting, notice this, suggesting that it is easier to make a positive impact on society when one is affluent. So this is the basis of the teaching, that poverty is a curse. And if we really want to have an impact on society, we need to be wealthy. Now when you hear that teaching, where in that teaching do you hear how great God's kingdom is going to be? Where in that teaching do you hear how awesome the future is going to be? Does he even mention the kingdom? It's all present tense. And people are, and this is a mega church. This thing is taking off. It's all over the world. And it's in the church as well. That we have to be wealthy. We have to name it and claim it. Because that's how we can have an impact on this society. You know what, brethren? This society is referred to in the Bible as this present evil it's something that, basically, there is no hope. God wants to come and wipe this out, just as he wiped out the pre-flood world, and start over. That's what's going to happen. Ephesians 2, verse 7 says that in the ages to come, not now, in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. So we're not looking for the exceeding riches of his grace today. We're looking for the exceeding riches of his grace in the age to come, in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, by the way, we're going to start our Bible study next week on the book of Hebrews. And we want to study that book through to Passover, where we want to really focus on the greatness of our high priest, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice. But Hebrews is a sermon to the Hebrews. And what was happening at the time of the book of Hebrews, when it was uh, spoken, when it was delivered, was there was intense persecution on the church. Intense. And Christianity was not a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. But Judaism was. And so, facing this intense persecution, many of the Christians were turning back to Judaism in order to avoid the persecution. So they could come under a sanctioned religion and no longer be classified as Christian. And this book of Hebrews is addressing that. And here in Hebrews 6, verse 4, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Personally, I believe it's the Apostle Paul uh, speaking to Hebrews, and that's why the language is different, because normally he's speaking to Gentiles. But in this case, he's speaking to Jews. Uh, but we don't know who, who the author is officially. But it says this, Hebrews 6 and verse 4. It is impossible. 
this is a real stern warning. This is very sobering. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and notice this, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. True teachers focus on the world to come, not this present evil age. So if they have tasted of this, if they shall fall away, if they go back into Judaism and deny Christ, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So these brethren had a decision to make. Are they looking for comfort and prosperity in this present evil age? Or is it okay to be persecuted? Is it okay to be tortured? Is it okay to be martyred in this present evil age? Is it okay to be meek and reviled and falsely accused? Because our attention, our focus is not on this present evil age. It's on the world to come. And so the apostle, or sorry, I shouldn't say that, the author, the speaker, is giving the Christians a choice. If you want to, you can go back to Judaism and escape the persecution. Or you can fixate your mind on the world that is to come. And whatever, you, whatever suffering is not worthy to be compared to what's coming. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. And verse 1. <clears throat> Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so a great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, notice this, who for the joy that was set before him. So he's setting up Jesus Christ as their example. Yes, you're going to have to suffer persecution. Yes, you could be tortured. Yes, you could be martyred. But notice this, Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He went through it because his mind was focused on the kingdom despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You haven't shed any blood yet. And Christ went through the crucifixion for the hope, the hope that was set before him. So if you have a teacher... And I'm sorry, I've got to call a spade a spade. If you have a teacher like T.D. Jakes that is telling you, you've got to be prosperous now. That's the only way you can really have an impact on society. You know, it's all about the present world. When they come with this kind of persecution, I don't know if we'll be able to stand and say that this life doesn't matter. And if I have to die, I have to die. But one thing I know, I'm not letting go of the glory that is to come. And that's, that's the position that the Hebrews were in. They have to make a decision. Do they go back to Judaism and escape the persecution? Or do they stand and say, I'm a Christian. Do your worst. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as unto children, my son. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. No, it's not all about prosperity. It's not all about fun. 
It's not all about blessings, naming and claiming. There's a bit of chastening involved in Christianity. Nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, this is it now. You, you might say, you know, this person is reviled, therefore he's cursed. This scripture says, whom the Lord loves, he chastises. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, it doesn't say if you name it and claim it, and always get the easy, easy way out, then you're a child of God. It says if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you're without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. This is the way. There's, there's a, a, a bigger plan being played out here. So all of us have to be partakers at some time or another of chastening. And if we're without chastisement, here's the, it's not my words, it's the scripture, you're bastards, not sons. If we're going to be sons, the Father's going to chasten us. He doesn't say, if you're my son, you're a you're, you know, child of the king. Name it and claim it. Confess it and possess it. Snap your fingers, I'll give you whatever you want. It's just not the way Christianity works. This is false teaching. Titus 2. Titus 2 and verse 12. Here's true teaching. This is true teaching. Titus 2 verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. You know, this name it and claim it, it's about lust. It's about the desire of the eyes. Desire of the flesh. True teaching is about denying this. Denying worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This is how we conduct ourselves in this world. It's not about trying to have a big impact on society and make this world a better place and I need to get richer and richer and richer so that I can make the world better and better and better. The Bible doesn't teach this. It just says, be sober. This is an evil, evil age. Keep your crown. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's not in this age. So this is one teaching that is in Christianity as a whole and creeping into the church of God. Prosperity. Name it and claim it. It's false. Because it's focusing us, it's focusing our attention on this present evil age and it's minimizing the glory of the kingdom. The second one, brethren, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, it's the healing doctrine. Healing. Again, what is healing all about? I'm not saying God does not heal. The scripture is clear. God heals. The scripture is clear that when we're sick, we're to call for the elders and ask for anointing. And the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. So God heals, no doubt about it. But does he heal when we snap our fingers? Is he on push-button remote control? Jesus, I want to be well now. Get to it. Get busy. Can we shout at God and say, heal me now. I command you to heal me now. Is this good Christian conduct? Again, where's our attention? Is our attention in this present life? Is it critical that we live until Christ returns in this present life? Paul said he's ready to be offered up. 
He's ready to give up his life. And he knows that there's a crown laid up for him. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 7, where Paul had to deal with some form of infirmity. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure. So he had incredible revelations. He had incredible blessings from God. He understood things that nobody else in his time understood. And he also understood that he had to live with something that God would not heal. Because it, it kept him humble. And he kind of put it all together and realized this is my cross. I have to carry this. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Yes, everyone that God receives, he chastises. And this was a part of Paul's chastisement. A thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Maybe, maybe your infirmity is a blessing. I, I'm on borrowed time. I know that. Do I have to be healed today? Must I live forever today in this present evil age? Or is it okay for me to die? Is it okay for any of us to die? Do, are any of us guaranteed tomorrow? Where's our focus? And we're seeing in the church, creeping into this church, the church of God, not just the CGI, the church of God, this notion that this life matters so much that any infirmity we have, even if it's the common cold, we snap our fingers and get rid of it. It's just not the way the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. Maybe we have to endure an infirmity. Maybe the person you see with an infirmity, God is all over that brother or sister. He is so excited about the character that they're developing as they patiently undergo whatever infirmity they have. So it's not that the person you see who dresses nice, looks nice, has a nice car, and everything's going so well for them, oh, they must be blessed. And the person who's going through severe trials, severe health difficulties, oh, something's definitely wrong. No, we don't know. The person who's blessed sometimes looks like the person who's cursed. And the person who's cursed looks like the person who's blessed. It's when Christ returns, then we see who's who. So he says, you've forgotten, sorry, I was in um, the healing doctrine, yes. I was here in Corinthians 12. He says here, verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord three times, earnestly, that it might depart from me. And his answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. It's okay. You don't have to be healed right now. Just rely on my grace. That's what's sufficient. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So we have to remember, brethren, that we have corrupt bodies. But we use these corrupt bodies to sow a body that is incorrupt. It's sown in dishonor. So we have a body of honor, but we sow it with a body of dishonor. As our flesh fails, this is the, the mystery of God, that with our failing flesh, we are sowing 
the soma pneumaticon, this pneumatic body, this spiritual body that will be given to each one of us. But it's built, it's developed, it's sown using a corrupt body. So while we face illness, it's not the illness that matters. It's our response to the illness. This is what we really must pray for. The character that can be developed when we are ill. The faith that can be developed when we are ill. The trust that we call for the elders, we're anointed, hands are laid on us, and we trust God. We trust God. If God heals me now, it's because there's work to do. There's a a pneumatic body to be sown, and there's a gospel to be preached. That's why God's healing me now. If he doesn't heal me now, then I'm ready to be offered up. And I'm ready to wait for the king. But it's not that I'm so important, and my experience of pleasure is so important, that when I snap my fingers, Jesus Christ has no choice but to heal me now. This is fantasy. We have work to do, we have a gospel to preach, and we have a a body of glory to sow. And we do all of that with a corrupt, failing body. And it's okay. Because God loves us. So brethren, let's not have the view, the false view, that healing is absolutely mandatory for God to give us right now as soon as we snap our fingers. That's false doctrine. Emphasis is on this present evil world. The third Christian doctrine, which is creeping into the church, which again is based on the present evil world, is this doctrine of spiritual warfare and deliverance. And we're hearing more and more of it creeping into the church. Wikipedia says this about deliverance ministry. Through Christian deliverance, or sorry, Though Christian deliverance has occurred from the time of Christ, the rise of deliverance ministries in the, uni- in the United States appears to have occurred almost immediately following the release of the film The Exorcist. So in 1973, this film The Exorcist was released, and all of a sudden, deliverance was everywhere. And it's, just, it's, a, it's gaining momentum, this need to exercise. To, to spot demons in people, either in the church or out of the church, and to exercise them, to get the demon out. The film has been credited with creating interest in casting out demons, even though the practices of deliverance ministries differ widely from the highly ritualized exorcisms carried out by the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. The relatively modern movement within Christianity, so read into that, this was not something that the early church practiced. There's no evidence in the early church of deliverance ministry. If you read, sit down and read the book of Corinthians, and what a disaster of a church that was. And Paul never wrote to them and said, look, you take that brother or sister and go through this ritual to get the demon out. Never. You look at the book of Ephesians and read this book, which was a city of the occult. This was a city that they worshipped demons, and they were were fully embedded in demon worship. And some of these people came into the church. And you read the entire book of Ephesians, and he doesn't say, 
Here's a ritual to go through to exercise demons out of the brethren. It's something that the early church did not practice. So Wikipedia says it's relatively modern. So since 1973, that's where it's been taken off, since the film The Exorcist. This relatively modern movement within Christianity has been marked by some controversy. Some Christians argue that all people, including believers, can be indwelt by demons. And others argue that only non-believers can be inhabited. Some have labeled deliverance ministry a departure from orthodoxy and a hurdle to spiritual growth, while others see it as being supported by the Bible and an aid to Christian sanctification. So, all of that to say, brethren, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, can believers be indwelt by demons? Can, can a, a person having the Holy Spirit also have a demon in them? Some believe that that's true, and that's why we need exorcism. Others agree that, no, that's not possible. But people in the world suffer from demon possession, and they feel this compulsion to put on you know, some sort of superhero cape and go and save the world, and, and find people who have demon possession and try to exercise demons out of them. And I've got to ask the question, why? Why? Are, are we trying to save this present evil world? Or is our focus on the kingdom? Recognizing that God is not calling everybody today. He's calling a handful so that he can train us and teach us so that in turn we can teach the whole world. If there is a scripture in the Bible that supports spiritual warfare, a scripture that they would turn to, I think it's Ephesians 6. So let's look at Ephesians 6. Because there's no denying it. Ephesians does speak of spiritual warfare. But what is this spiritual warfare? <clears throat> Ephesians 6 and verse 10. <clears throat> so first, brethren, notice that it begins with the word finally. Finally. What that means is there's a lot of instruction that has come beforehand. And this is the conclusion of the instruction. So finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice it doesn't say, put on the whole armor of God so that you can go out into society and fight with the devil. It doesn't say that. It says there's a bunch of instruction that's come beforehand. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Employer, employees, be good to your employers, even if they're horrible. And there's all this type of instruction that is basically telling us to be meek, to be trusting God, not to fight for this present world. Now, to do this is impossible because we have human nature. Therefore, in order to accomplish all of these instructions, we have to put on the whole armor of God. So that when the devil comes against us and tries to get us to behave with human nature, we have God's nature. And we can withstand the devil's wiles. So it's not about exercising anybody. 
It's about working on ourselves and building the character of Christ. This is the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So when flesh and blood comes, the fight is not against flesh and blood. There's something else happening. There are principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what's coming against us. That's why if you're a wife, you might have difficulty submitting to your husband. There may be an attitude that you get. If you're a child, why you might have difficulty submitting to your parents. If you're an employee, why you might have difficulty dealing with a, a horrible boss. Because there are principalities and powers that are watching us and wanting us to fail and are going to stir up within us our human nature so that they can take us away from what God has intended for us. That's what we're up against. Stand, therefore. It's a defensive measure. Don't give up your crown. It doesn't say run out and try and find people who need to be exercised. You stand. You deal with your human nature. And you stand having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all, take the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. These principalities, these powers, they're shooting fiery darts at you. If you put on the whole armor of God, you'll be able to withstand it. This is the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So don't just look after yourself. Pray for all saints as well. I'm going to say this, brethren. In my observation, the people that I see that are engaged in this deliverance and exorcism, it's about self-aggrandizement. It's a way for me to feel important. You have a demon. You must come to me. I'm the one. I have the gift of exorcism. So you must come to me and I will exorcise the demon for you. And again, it's this present evil world. I want to be important now. False doctrine. So we looked at three Christian doctrines that are false. And we can spot them as false because they're focused on this present evil world. True teachers, true doctrine, the gospel, the euangelion, the the news that is full of joy, and there's no bad news, there are no tears, there's no sadness in this news. That good news is the gospel of the kingdom of God. There's no other good news. If anybody comes with any other good news, it's not a good news, and that person needs to be cursed. Because our focus is not on this present evil age. So those, those were three doctrines. the prosperity, And just examples. The prosperity gospel, the concept and notion that we must be healed now, and spiritual warfare and exorcism. And we must, anybody who has a demon, we have to find them and take, get the demon out of them. All focused on this present evil world. Okay. Now I'm going to come to a doctrine that is not a Christian doctrine. It's a doctrine in the world, but it's creeping into the church, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. 
And if we are parents, we especially need to be aware of this doctrine. And, and once, once we see this doctrine, we'll spot it everywhere. And we'll realize what's going on and, and what, we ha- what we have to fight against. So let me talk about this doctrine. And you'll see it at work. You've heard this uh, term, political correctness. Everybody's heard political correctness. Okay. Political correctness is the outgrowth of this doctrine. It's, it's the manifestation of this doctrine. But let's deal with the doctrine. So we're in this present evil world. And this present evil world can be split into three phases. We have the pre-modern world, the modern world, and the postmodern world. And it is this postmodern world that we are living in that we have to be fully aware of what it is. What is the teaching of this pre, uh, postmodern world? Okay. And you're going to see it everywhere. First, the pre-modern world. The pre-modern world saw ultimate reality as supernatural. So, so yes, we're in a physical world, but reality is really supernatural. And, and there was a lot of mysticism. And knowledge comes through faith. So in the pre-modern world, people just believe that the, the way we learn is through revelation and, and faith. And human nature is flawed. That by nature, we are flawed. The political economic system in the pre-modern world was feudalism. So we basically had uh, lords who owned land and peasants who worked the land. And that was the structure. And the theory of right and wrong was collectivism altruism, that we're we're a community, we need to do what's best for the community. That was the pre-modern world. Around 1400s, 1450, came the Renaissance in the Middle Ages, in in Europe, in the Middle Ages, and that launched the modern world. The modern world sees ultimate reality as the natural world, that what you see is what you get. And it sees knowledge not coming through faith, but rather through reason. That the way to find truth is to logically deduce it. So let's reason and figure it out. Human nature is no longer seen in the modern world as flawed. Human nature is a blank slate. And it's not nature, it's nurture. So in the modern world, it was all about how we shape people. Nurture. The theory of right and wrong in the modern world was individualism. That do what's right for you. Do what makes sense for you. This was the modern world. And this was really highlighted with the Industrial Revolution. So our whole society was basically built through the Industrial Revolution. And it was all about structure and uh, reason. And evolution really came to the fore in the modern world. Okay. Newsflash, the modern world is over. We've moved into what's now called the postmodern world. And this is something we have to understand. And if we're parents, we have to understand it. The postmodern world says this ultimate reality, there's no such thing. They believe in anti realism, that nothing is true. This is the postmodern world. Okay. Knowledge does not come through reason. Knowledge is not logical. 
It's subjective. It's whatever you feel. If you think something's true, then it's true for you. And if I think the opposite is true, then it's true for me. This is the postmodern. There's no grand narrative. There's, there's no explanation for why we're here. The grand narrative is that there is no grand narrative. We're just here. This is the postmodern world. Human nature is socially constructed. When you put groups of people together, how we interact with each other, that's what shapes us. Postmodernism believes in socialism. Everybody should be looked after by the government. Their theory of right and wrong is egalitarian. It means everybody has a right to say what's right and wrong. Nobody should say what's right and wrong for somebody else. And they believe in rebellion and that there should be no rules for anybody. This is the postmodern world. It came to us in the 60s, primarily from two men, two philosophers. One, his name is Jacques Derrida. He's a French Jewish intellectual. And the other is Michel Foucault, or sorry, Foucault, another French philosopher. Think of the, these were men that were in their 30s in the 60s and uh, have lived, uh, just died recently. Think of these men as men who are extremely intellectual, really, really, really smart, like gifted smart, really, really smart. And as extremely smart as they are, that's how evil they are as well. In particular, Michel Foucault was known to be tortured as a young man. He would always mutilate himself. He was committed to an insane, insane asylum, and he spent the rest, half of his life in San Francisco leading the most debauchery-filled life that he could, because he wanted to experience everything, drugs, everything, and he ended up dying of AIDS. These are the fathers of modern philosophy, and they're everywhere. They're in our politics, they're in our schools, they're in our entertainment. The whole world has bought into this postmodernism philosophy. Let me tell you a little bit more about this. Wikipedia now says that there's postmodern Christianity. So a, a philosophy that says there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Whatever you want to be right for you is right for you. Whatever I want to be right for me is right for this philosophy is now coming into Christianity. It says this, postmodern Christianity are various forms of Christianity which have been influenced by postmodern philosophy. Although a relatively recent development within Christianity, some Christian postmodernists assert that their style of thought has an affinity with foundational Christian thinkers such as Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. This is the point now, and, and think about this in, in the church as well. There's something called weak theology. It's a, it's a way of thinking called weak theology. Weak theology is a manner of thinking about theology from a deconstructive point of view. So I, I just have to explain deconstruction. This was uh, um, Jacques Derrida's contribution. That society, because reality is socially constructed, there's no such thing as reality. It's something we make up. Therefore, 
whatever we are living by, the reality that we have adopted, accepted, it's not real. It was constructed socially. Therefore, what we have to do is deconstruct it and reconstruct it the way we want. We choose what is reality. So the whole thrust of postmodernism is destruction. We must tear down everything, and then we rebuild it the way we want it to be. Because everything in reality, reality is defined by contrasts. And whenever you have contrast, if you say good and evil, for example, there's always one that's in the superior position and one that's in the subordinate position. So good is better than evil. So they're saying, we can't have this. We, we're going to tear it all apart, and we'll decide what's what. And this is coming into Christianity now. So a deconstructive point of view means nothing's true. We'll just tear everything apart, and then we'll put it back together the way we want to. This is what's coming in. This, this style of thought owes a debt to Jacques Derrida, especially in, his light, in light of his idea, a weak force. Weak theology is weak because it takes a non-dogmatic perspectival approach to theology. We don't know. We're going to read the Bible, but we really don't know what it says. Could be this, could be that. What do you think? What do I, whatever. This is coming into Christianity. And it's coming into the church. You're going to hear, and again, I'm not focusing on CGI, but you're going to hear in the church, ministers or teachers uh, preaching, saying, well, could be this, could be that. Talking about fundamental truths. This is postmodernism creeping into the church. So I just wanted to, just a little bit before we conclude, but I really want you to get this, uh, my, my words. So at its heart, postmodernism is a fight for language. It's all about the language. Because the language we use shapes the way we think, and that shapes reality. So postmodernists are fighting to control the language. That's what political correctness is all about. That we're saying there's no, there's no explanation for why we're here. And we're enforcing that on everybody. You cannot come and say you have an explanation for why, why, life, why life is the way it is. You have to be politically correct. Political correctness sounds like tolerance. It sounds like you should be tolerant. It's not. It's coercion. What they're doing is forcing us to redefine reality. So you're going to hear terms now introducing into society. Instead of calling something like homosexuality, sodomy, that's what the Bible calls it, but that term is judgmental. So you can't say sodomy anymore. In fact, now, we're leaning away from saying homosexuality. We're now saying gay. And instead of saying heterosexual, we're now saying non-homosexual. So we have gays, and we have non-homosexuals. This is how the language is changing, and our young people's minds are being rewired so that nothing is true. And what's evil is now good. And what's good is now evil. This is postmodernism. Look at Isaiah 5. And you'll notice with political correctness, there's zero tolerance. You try and stand up in a classroom today and, and give your view on, you know, I'm going to give my view of what I think of homosexuality. You might not think this, but this is what I think. They will tear you apart. 
because it's complete intolerance. It's forced compliance. It's coercion. We have to change the way people think. Isaiah 5 and verse 20. God says, Woe unto them. Woe unto them that call evil good. This is where we are now. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. This is exactly what postmodernism is all about. That who are you to say what's better or what's good? Let's just throw it all up in the air, deconstruct it, destroy it, reconstruct it, and what you used to call evil, we will call good. What you used to call good, we will call evil. That's what's happened. And God says, well, and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God wants these distinctions. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Verse 23, which justify the wicked for reward and take away from the righteous, uh, take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. This is the fight, brethren, that postmodernism is designed to take away your righteousness, to confuse your children, that they're going to be growing up telling you that what is evil is actually good, and what is good is evil. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and as the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word, despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Okay, I'm going to wrap up. I just want to read a blog post regarding Jacques Derrida, which I think really captures the essence of his thinking. In, in fact, it's a quote from him. This is the, the father, one of the fathers of postmodernism, both of whom were homosexuals. He says here, the deconstruct, this is Lawrence Oster introducing the quote from Jacques Derrida. He says, the deconstructionist philosopher Jacques Derrida tells the world that he is indeed exactly what he and people like him have always seemed to be, a deliberate sower of untruth and confusion, a destructive parasite, a non-living virus that takes over and kills its host, the host in this case being the living body of language and meaning. So I'm going to quote to you what Jacques Derrida says of himself. So these two guys... Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault are the fathers of modern postmodernism. And the whole world is, you, you can't watch a television show today or a movie without seeing postmodernism. You'll notice there's no such thing as a good hero anymore. What you have as the hero is someone who is evil, who happens to do good things. And they're trying to get our children and us to fall in love with evil. It's in politics, it's in education, it's everywhere. The father of this, or one of the fathers of this, is Jacques Derrida. Listen to him describe himself. Please listen to this, and then I'll wrap up. All I have done is dominated by the thought of a virus. So what he said is, I put a virus into society. I have dominated by the thought of a virus what could be called a parasitology, a virology, the virus being many things. The virus is in part a parasite that destroys. So that he, he wants to destroy society because it has to be rebuilt. 
that introduces disorder into communication. So that's his whole point that we can't use language anymore. He's going to stop us and force us to rewire the language. Even from the biological standpoint, this is what happens with a virus. It derails a mechanism off the communicational type. It's coding and decoding. So when you get a virus, the DNA in your body can't communicate properly. That's what a virus It disrupts communication. On the other hand, it is something that is neither living nor non-living. The virus is not a microbe. So he loves this fact that there's no distinction. And if you follow these two threads, that of a parasite which disrupts destination from the communicative point of view, disrupting writing, inscription, and the coding and decoding of inscription, that which on the other hand is neither alive nor dead, you have the matrix of all that I have done since I began. He is so proud that he has launched a virus into society that is just spreading everywhere, and as it spreads, it's destroying communication. We're in a fight for language, and that's what they've done. They have taken over language, and we can't even speak to each other without participating in what they're trying to do, destroy society. I won't, uh, I won't go on, but this is serious. This, this is perhaps the most insidious doctrine that we face as a church, this, this, this throwing up of all distinctions. And it's in our educational system. Believe me, the, the, the top academics are completely in love with Foucault and Derrida. They have completely embraced their teaching. And it's in politics, it's in entertainment, it's everywhere. It's even in the church. And, and we have to fight this. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. God wants clear distinctions. And we have to fight through language. Let's conclude, brethren. Uh, I'll ask you to go to 1 Timothy 4. And while you're going there, I'm just going to repeat the scripture we read earlier and just add one uh, couple of verses to it. In 2 Timothy 4, where Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. Oh yes, we're involved in a fight. This is a fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Postmodernism is designed to destroy our faith. We have to keep the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Let's love his appearing. Now he says this, but evil men, and I'm, in, I'm still in Second uh, Timothy 4, but I'm coming to 1 Timothy 4, but evil men and seducers, of which we can count Foucault and Derrida, shall wax worse and worse. So we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Now, now there are new philosophers that are building on these philosophers. So it's going to get worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But you continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of. There are things that we must be certain about, dogmatic about. We're not uncertain. You continue in these things, knowing of whom you have learned them. And let's, let's conclude now in 1 Timothy 4. And I'll, I'll put you in remembrance as well in the instruction is in Romans that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to protect our minds. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13. 
until I come, you give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Give attention to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give yourself wholly to them, that your profiting may appear to all. Take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Take heed to the doctrine, brethren. Be aware of false doctrine. Don't allow it to come into the church. Don't allow it to come into our lives. Doctrine is what destroys. Doctrine builds and doctrine destroys. And that's what Derrida and Foucault are saying. They're saying if we can get into people's minds, we can destroy society. And then we can rebuild it the way we want to. So they recognize the value of doctrine. Do we? Paul is telling us here through Timothy, pay attention to doctrine. Meditate on it. Continue in, in it. For in doing this, you shall save yourself and them that hear you. Brethren, the good news, the euangelion, the news that's full of joy, and there's no sorrow in it, is the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God. That's the good news. This present evil age is worth nothing compared to the age that is to come. Whatever you're going through, whatever you have or don't have, sell it off for the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that we're going to be irresponsible in this age. We're going to be responsible. But our vision, our focus is on the age to come. And let's fight for the truth.